taking care of your health should be this thing that makes a ton of sense, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. Like if you are more that progressive, like socialized medicine thing, then it's like, well, for the party comrade, you need to be in shape and, you know, because you're less of a burden on society. And then for more of the, you know, the conservative side of things, it's like, well, chubby dad, who's a father of three and a husband and all that. If you have a fucking stroke or a heart attack, who's going to take care of your family? And your life insurance is fine, but who's going to take care of your family? We've got a great episode for you, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by our friends at WeWork. The reason I chose to have an office at WeWork is based a lot on flexibility. I started a decade ago as a one-person company, and now we have a growing team. WeWork has the space and budget for all my needs. From hot desks for one to a full office setup with multiple people, I can grow, scale up or down whenever I need. No long-term contracts, whatever I need. I also love the community and other small business and entrepreneurs who work here. It's super collaborative and everyone is in the same boat willing to help each other out. If you're interested in a tour, visit WeWork.com, search by your city and zip code for WeWork near you. Now let's get back to our episode. Hey folks, my name is Rob Wolf. I'm a retired research biochemist, two times New York Times bestselling author, and you are here experiencing Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another episode of the show. I'm here with the amazing Rob Wolf. Rob, welcome back to the show. And I usually ask my guests, how do you get this job? Uh, I, I think uh, I think my analogy last time, like our show got got lost in the interweb somehow the first time, and um, the the old Bugs Bunny Warner Brother cartoons, like when all the guys, the military recruits, are lined up and they ask for volunteers. And everybody takes a step back, except the few schmucks that are not paying attention. And I, in some ways, I, I kind of feel like everybody who had better sense than myself um, went and did other things versus fighting for health and wellness and regenerative agriculture and whatnot. But those, those just seem to be the, the things that I'm interested in. But I mean, it, it, it's purely been a uh, an interest and and passion driven process. Like I, I really enjoy helping people. Like I, I definitely, I, I think I'm one of those folks that gets uh, maybe a disproportionate dopamine buzz by, by knowing that my work matters and, and, you know, interacting with folks and, and helping them. But that's really been it. Like, and, and uh, my career has been much more akin to uh, skiing through trees than like the whole Tony Robbins deal of like, you imagine what you're going to do and then you, you uh, backfill and retro engineer it. And there's these like eight, 85 steps that you do to do that. I've never remotely done that. I've tried to do pieces of that. And yeah. my life usually goes to shit in, in a pretty quick order with that. I don't like it. I'm not good at it. And yeah. it, I, clearly some people are, but that's definitely not my process. Very relatable. Uh, almost like, you know, that's the story of my life too. Um, Necessity is the mother of invention many times, and I think you might be a product of that. Let's take it way back in the chronology to young Rob, and uh, I also like to frame it in the context of, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Because I like to sometimes oversimplify this idea right now, and I feel like I'm talking to two main groups of people. One is, you know, this group of young people, teenagers maybe just coming out of high school or college, thinking about what they want to be when they grow up. Uh, what they want to do with their future. And, you know, a lot of them that I've talked to, they're panicked because they haven't got it all figured out yet. And it's like, it's okay, you know, take your time. 
Then there's another group uh, of, let's say, you know, mid-career, middle-aged people, and there's this great resignation that's happening, and everyone's hitting the reset button and rethinking their lifestyle, whether they want to go back in the office or, you know, um, do a hybrid of working from home, whatnot. And I think they're reevaluating how happy they are, their quality of life. And so take it back in the chronology and um, walk us through what you were thinking when you were younger and also that story of how, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Sure, sure. I mean, from a pretty young age, I was fairly certain I was going to do something science related. Like I've always been kind of a geek and... and uh, I was a California state powerlifting champion in high school. Like I, I, I did that. And in the same year that I did that, I competed in the uh, state science Olympiad and got 10th place in like anatomy and physiology in the state of California. So like, you know, on the one hand, I'm 185 pound, like no necked, you know, power lifter. And then also I'm, I'm competing in, in physics and, and physiology competitions, like building engineering bridges and stuff. So I, that's definitely always been my, my, you know, kind of wheelhouse of, of interest. Um, yeah. I did an undergrad in biochemistry was looking at medical school or potentially a, a research track, you know, MD, MD, PhD type thing. And I got really sick. I had ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing a bowel resection. Um, I'm about 170 pounds right now at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis. I was 120, 125 pounds. Like I, I was in bad shape and nearly died from it. And it, the, the standard medical offerings could do virtually nothing for me. It was cut out a, a long run of my digestive tract or put me on immunosuppressant drugs such that a, a cold might kill me or my likelihood of developing cancer is very high. And it was in poking around trying to figure out this issue that this idea of ancestral eating or a paleo type diet got on my radar. And what was interesting, and it's a long story how, how that, that came up, but what was obvious to me in reading that early research, and this was around 1998, was that so much of the health issues that we take as being normal today are completely abnormal. They are a, an evolutionarily novel event, which means they're new. Like they, it, it, Just because everybody coming through the door is sick doesn't mean that that's the normal state for humans. It means that it's the normal situation for, for what's currently occurring. And I altered my diet and lifestyle and put the ulcerative colitis into remission. And it was so profound that I knew I couldn't go on and do medical school. Like it was going to be you know, threading barbed wire through my, through my ears to do that because I was going to spend another four years doing the basic medical degree. And then, you know, four to eight years doing some sort of specialty to finally arrive at this spot where I'm going to mainly talk to people about diet, lifestyle, exercise, circadian biology, you know, sleep and all that. And it just seemed like an, an epic waste of time. I, I started looking around for a graduate degree, like a PhD in these areas. But at that time there weren't there weren't great options there. Today, there are people like Dom Diagostino and Rhonda Patrick and different people who are heads of labs where I could easily go nest under that and do a PhD and probably be pretty happy, but there was nothing like that. And interestingly, it was right around this time that this weird workout online called CrossFit uh, uh, you know, landed on my radar. And I started doing that with a good friend of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL. 
And we emptied his garage and converted it into a gym. And within about four months, we had like 15 people training with us. And I was like, I really like this. And I was, I was meeting all these people who had gut and autoimmune issues. And I mean, like virtually everybody has these problems. Like it's kind of surprising. And I was really able to help these folks because I would see them three to five times a week, an hour a shot. And I could talk to them and like, Hey, what, you know, how are you doing on this thing or that thing? And, and it was, it was amazing. It was the type of medicine I really wanted to practice. And so Dave and I reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit. And I, I basically wrote them a letter and I said, Hey, uh, we are training people and we want to open a gym and we want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they said, yes, go be achieve. And that was CrossFit North, the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. And then I had a chance to move down to Chico, California and open what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, CrossFit NorCal, NorCal Strength and Conditioning. And this was the stuff that I really enjoyed. You know, I, I liked science. I liked preventative medicine. Like I've had a saying for a long time, the gym is primary care medicine. Like that, that is where you learn about sleep and food and exercise and you have community. And when, once you hit the dock in the box, once you hit your primary care practitioner, that's secondary or tertiary medicine, something's already gone wrong, you know? And so I, um, to your point, it really was following my, my passion in that regard. And I, I got to work in and around CrossFit for a number of years. And I met a ton of interesting people learned an enormous amount and it was traveling the world, doing seminars, working with people, like trying things and getting feedback that allowed me to write two New York times, bestselling books and, and really do, do remarkably well with that as a, a first time author, I, my, my books have sold more than a, a million copies each, which is like an unheard of thing for in general. I'm very, very lucky. Uh, uh, most books, something like 99.8% of books never sell more than 2000 copies. Mm-hmm. And for a first time author, new genre, like there was no paleo diet genre in bookstores when I wrote this, like it was a, a, an entirely new thing. But the reason why this stuff I think has been successful is I learned really how to help people. And this stuff has grown virally because if one person ends up having a lot of problems and my, a book, a seminar, a podcast helps them, they will move heaven and earth to spread that knowledge to other people. And so I ended up with a, a really highly engaged group of people that were, were hawking my wares while I was asleep, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you, you know, and we're being better advocates for my work than I ever could be. Yeah. That's amazing. I want to unpack a little bit of that. So, I mean, it's amazing to me. You're, you're talking about timestamps of 1998. Um, you know, the internet's uh, basically, you know, a year old or two right. in 1998. So you're talking about all this research that you did. I would imagine that you did this in college libraries or, um, other places you did not have maybe the vast internet, uh, resources that we have now. That's just amazing to me. Like there was this brand new search engine. Google was around in 98. And that is for the first, when I put paleolithic diet into a search engine, that is where I found, uh, Lauren Cordain's work. Who's a researcher who did some of the stuff and a few other people, but there wasn't much, there there wasn't much out there. Yeah. 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 And then it's amazing. Uh, I mean, 
timing is everything, isn't it? I mean, and I think it should also be underscored that, um, you know, no pun intended, you're, you're following your gut in everything that you're doing, right? For, for better or for worse, you're in pain or you're suffering and you're trying to find solutions. And literally, um, you stumble onto this, you know, arguably uh, subculture, cult-like subculture of CrossFit. Um, and you're one of the basically founding members, the first person to get the, the groundswell going and start to, to spread the message. That's also incredible timing. Um, I mean, how much of your success do you feel is luck and how much do you feel like what you're just following intuition that you sort of knew this would blossom into something big? Oh, shoot. I mean, you could, one could make the argument that it was uh, 80 or 90% luck. I mean, CrossFit could never happen the way that it happened now because what, what a lot of people don't appreciate is that CrossFit.com, they started posting a daily workout of the day which was really weird. It's like, here's a workout and try it and, and talk to us. And they posted articles related to health or wellness or medicine or whatever. They were blogging before there was a term blogging. This is something that I think people don't appreciate. I'm 50 now. I turned 50 at, at the end of January. And so I've lived to a time when there were no cell phones and there was no internet and so I've seen all this stuff. And there was a time when the term blog, which was a video or, or a web log, and then the video blog, you know, but that was a web log. You keep a log and it was on the web, a blog. Yeah. They were blogging before the term blog had been coined. And it and people were just like, what the fuck is this? Like this yeah. is so weird. Like so normally it was just like a static website. And and you have to keep in mind that this was at a time that like web pages didn't update all the time. Like you didn't have Foursquare, you didn't have um, anything like uh, Discus or any, any of the, uh, you know, the, even the archaic stuff. So they had a computer programmer that every single day would literally have to like, from like, as if creating matter from energy, like create a new page and they created a comment function in there. Like comment functions were really archaic at, at this time. It's like 2001, 2002. And yeah. then things started getting a little bit better, but they were at the beginning of the internet, like right at the beginning of the internet. They had a really interesting position on fitness. They redefined fitness. What is CrossFit was one of their first things. And then what is fitness? And they did a Procrustean bed where they defined everything in terms that made them look favorable. And I think that they were right for the most part, but they took a completely contrarian position. Um, the internet was brand new and nascent and they figured out some interesting things. Like if they, when they received pictures of people doing their workouts, if they posted that picture, that person would share that post to their social network, which at the time was maybe only a couple of hundred people, but they were like, holy fuck, I'm on the front page of this website, which yeah. was crazy then, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then they fit, you know, I remember Greg Glassman, their, their rubric for posting things and engagement was hot girl, big boobs, hot girl, small boobs, jacked, strong dude, and then police, military fire, old people and kids. And they just had a rotation of that. And they just 
you know, it was like, okay, yeah. today's the, the, the kid post today's the old person post today's the hot, hot gal, small boobs. And they just rotated through that so that they were engaging with all these different, you know, people and they were encouraging them to, Hey, take a picture of where you are. So when, uh, you know, nine 11 happened and then all massive number of military folks are deployed, then you get dudes in, in the military that are throwing gymnastics rings over the turret of a, of a tank and yeah. doing muscle ups on there and sending that in. And people are like, oh, wow, this is incredible. You know, so, so nobody's ever, ever going to recreate CrossFit. Like it, it, there will be derivations and whatnot, but there's, it, it, there's never going to be that like groundswell and social change in that way. And, and I definitely like, I tagged along with that. Like much of my rise and in, in relative decline has just gone in lockstep with what has happened with, with CrossFit. And so again, you know, how much was luck? 90%, maybe 95%. Like I definitely had good material and was ready to respond to what was going on, but it, it, uh, you know, it was the right place, the right time. And, and then really figuring out that if I, if I could provide value to people, I would figure out a way to monetize that. And, and that was the way that I, I, I went from day one. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, in your defense or to your credit, I would say, sure, that was lightning in a bottle maybe, but also, you know, I, this idea of uh, being in proximity of people, places, and things that can help you be successful, I think is a real underutilized, undervalued, underestimated uh, course of action. You know, um, and I'm guilty of this sometimes too, like this analysis paralysis where I'm just sitting and thinking, you know, what should I do? And maybe I have several different options laid out. Um, but I have found that just moving my bones in the direction of where I think, uh, something good could happen. Um, uh, it happens much more often and I get better results than if I'm sitting on my couch or in my office just thinking about it. Like you literally moved your feet, got yourself to the gym because you needed to find a solution to your you know, health issues uh, and you stumbled onto that. So I think that proximity thing is really important and maybe it's a lesson that we can just leave like wherever you are, whoever you are, if you have this, uh, I think you should really trust yourself, I guess is what I'm saying is sometimes we, we want to trust the guru or we want to read a book and that's all well and good. Um, but also I think, you know, right here, we, we know what we ought to be doing or we think we know what we ought to be doing. And that intuition, I think, um, is really valuable. And when we trust ourselves enough to, to follow it, and I'm not saying that you're not going to make mistakes. I mean, um, that's a story of my life too. It's like s uh, several, uh, you know, tri trial and errors before I finally get it right. In fact, I'm, I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out, but just moving your bones got you to where you needed to be. And then that lightning in the bottle happened and you were there for that movement and you, you sort of led that movement and then you were able to make this impact, which I think is, is incredible. Um, talk to me about seeing doctors because I'm at a certain age where I care about my health too. We've shared off camera a little bit of my health journey. I was struggling with headaches for a while and I saw every single doctor you could. I started with big ticket items thinking, all right, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged guy now. Um, wheels start to start to come off the bus a little bit 
And so I started big, big ticket items. Uh, headache, I thought, all right, I'm going to go get, I'm going to see my neurologist. I'm going to get an MRI. Maybe I have a brain tumor. <laughs> Am I dying slowly? I had no idea because, you know, taking, you know, Excedrin migraine or something, I was getting tired of that. Uh, it was not a long-term strategy. Couldn't scale. So I got the, the MRI. It was clear, no problems. Then I got, I went to my uh, cardiologist, carotid artery scan, heart check. You know, I did the whole on the treadmill thing. Basically, clean bill of health. Um, I eat pretty clean. I've always been an athlete. Um, I'm, you know, I could stand to lose a couple of pounds, but I'm, I'm pretty happy, like, maintaining this weight. Um, so I, I didn't have major issues there. Um, then I went to see my dentist. I thought maybe I had, you know, some sort of tooth infection. I saw my eye doctor, optometrist. I saw a chiropractor, physical therapist. Um, and no one could solve my headache problem. And, and then I was surfing the internet and, um, talking to different people. And I think it was after an interview with, uh, NFL quarterback, Russell Wilson, who was on my show, uh, it was, it's been a couple of years now, but he was like, Brian, everything you're describing, I think you're dehydrated. And I was like, well, I drink plenty of water. He goes, no, 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 like electrolytes. And, uh, so then I started investigating electrolyte, uh, replenishment and I stumbled onto Element. And so I ordered some, and I, I took it, and surprisingly, to my surprise, it reduced my headaches by about 50%, like right off the bat. And I thought, oh, maybe I am electrolyte deficient. Right. Um, so that was amazing to me. Um, but talk to me about the, like the, the number of doctors that you saw. Talk to me about the process, because I, I think there's a lot of people that feel like me and you who are frustrated with traditional medicine. I mean, I felt like I was just you know, a chattel being herded from one place to the other. And um, I even had a fitness guy who's kind of a big influencer online kind of get mad at me when I was just like suffering from a headache after one of his workouts. He goes, just drink more water. I use a Marine. And um, he had kind of this like tough it out mentality. I was like, bro, like, I'm, not, I'm telling you, like, I, this is a crippling, this is a crippling, I cannot do any more push I can't do, like my I feel like my head's gonna explode and um, anyway so I'm just so frustrated with with doctors either throwing pills at me or not being able to find answers how did you how did you navigate that process how did you figure it out for yourself um desperation honestly and yeah. I mean I I um I can't say enough good about modern medicine if we we have an emergent event, like you get hit by a bus. If you develop cancer or something like that, like yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah, heart attacks. Like uh, the people who survive heart attacks now versus like the 1960s, it's shocking. Like it's so good at that. Can't say enough good about that. But in 2017, there were 33,000 peer-reviewed articles on type two diabetes. In that year alone, 33,000, like whole article. And some of them are randomized control trials, other review things. But the point being, we know more about type 2 diabetes than we've ever known in history. Yet our rates of type 2 diabetes are increasing, not de decreasing. Right. So if I'm an engineer and I'm building bridges and I learn more about materials science and physics, I'm going to make better fucking bridges. They're going to be stronger. They're going to be cheaper. It's like Moore's law. Like things get cheaper and better. There's no Moore's law in medicine. Like chronic degenerative disease gets worse and worse and more expensive every year. 
And that is something that, that like the, the engineers and the tech people and medicine should just sit down and have this like, holy shit moment. Like, how does this happen? How do we know more about everything under God's green earth than we've ever known yet? Our lot in life is worse. Like it, we're doing the wrong goddamn thing, you know. So, well, the conspiracy theorists would say uh, it's greed, it's corporate greed, you know, um, and they're doing it on purpose. And there might be a little bit of that. There's some opportunism there. Like I think that opportunism definitely, you know, people figure out. Oh, if people are sick, we can figure out ways of capitalizing on that. But you, you just need to have people not embrace like. Part of what I think happened is that the 20th century, it, it, interestingly, the victories of the 20th century were antibiotics, vaccines, and surgery. Like those things absolutely transformed the world. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But what are those things? They're totally prescriptive. And the, as, as the medical consumer, Okay, if I need surgery, I show up and and you knock me out and you do whatever, and then I do some stuff with rehab. A vaccine, I go and get the vaccine and then I motor along. And you know, and then on on antibiotics, it, it's kind of the same deal. It's totally prescriptive, and I am just kind of like a passenger in this yeah, it's, thing. It's I'm, reactive. I'm not active. Yeah. Yeah, it's reactive. Everything that related to chronic degenerative disease, I actually have to get in and do something. Medicine will never fix diabetes. It will never fix neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer, without an active participation of the individual involved. And, and I'm, I'm as optimistic as anybody is about like technology and, and everything, but these chronic degenerative diseases are shockingly complex. And it's kind of like, I remember... Paul Volcker around like 2006, and he was talking about the the real estate bubble, and he said that we've offloaded risk, and I was like, that's such bullshit. Like just because you've sliced all these you know mortgage backed securities into these weird tranches and sold them off into the world, doesn't mean that risk ran away. It just means that it's been all welded together and hidden in a way that when the house starts burning down, the whole thing's going to be involved before you know that, that like one, one piece is on fire. And this is kind of where modern medicine is at. And so we, we have sold people a bill of goods and doctors are in a position where they, the way that the physician has been empowered is a quick assessment. Here's your medicine, here's your surgery here, you know, whatever. And then you're gone. Whereas, you know, affecting complex behavior change is really hard. It's time consuming. It's fairly expensive in time and resources. And so medicine going forward is going to necessitate a much greater um, interactivity between practitioners and, and, you know, us as consumers I see health coaches potentially being a, a bigger and bigger factor there, you know, so you go to your doctor, the doctor's like, you're overweight. And that's a whole weird thing too, with woke culture. If somebody's overweight and metabolically sick, now we're being big meanies and hurting them by saying, you should probably lose some weight and get metabolically healthy. And in fact, we're killing those people. So that's a whole other like yeah. bit of insanity. And that has gone into medical schools and whatnot, but to even get people to change, it's going to require like billions of dollars been spent in apps and, and stuff trying to get people to spontaneously do to health what they did on Twitter and Facebook. And it's never going to work. 
Like we don't affect massive change like that in a vacuum or very, very few people do. So I, I know that that was kind of a wandering answer, but you know what, a lot of the future of medicine, it's going to be, um, we're going to need health coaches. We're going to need stewards. We're going to need community to be able to affect these, these changes. And that's the only way it's really going to happen. Like a few people read books, like what I, I write and they're able to do it and implement it and really affect some change. Very few people are able to do that. A, yeah. a greater percentage of people they'll sign up for like a Weight Watchers or a Jenny Craig or something. Those things are effective because you have a community element to it and you have accountability. You spend some money, people check in on you. They care about you joining a CrossFit gym, joining a martial arts gym, you know, and, and doing resets and challenges. Those things are effective at, at uh, changing things, but the, the classic training of a physician is great for dealing with acute life-threatening illnesses and is completely inappropriate for dealing with the vast majority of chronic degenerative disease, which around 2007, more people began dying from chronic degenerative disease than infections and, and uh, malnutrition for the first time in history. Up until that point, more people had always died from infections, malnutrition, and whatnot. And in around 2007, 2008, nobody's totally sure which, but globally, more people started dying from overnutrition, from overeating than they did from all the other stuff. Yeah. The wheels are turning. I'm thinking about so many things. I totally agree with you and your assessment. I also, like in my own personal experience, I think what is really missing or what I was noticing is this lack of personalization, right? So the doctors are great. They know what they're doing. They're well-trained. Um, they're doing the best they can, but it's at best intelligent guessing, a lot of poking and prodding, you know, taking my blood and evaluating uh, blood panels and, and trying to make sense of it. But you know, it's a shot in the dark and, and it's, it's like, okay, instead of trying to diagnose the actual problem, it's really a process of elimination. Okay. It's not that, right? It's not a brain tumor. Uh, you're not having a heart attack. Your arteries are not clogged. You don't have an infection in your teeth. Your eyes, you know, aren't, uh, uh, diseased, you know, all these things. And I think personal, personalized medicine is hopefully the future. Um, and the other thing that I really wish we had was this, uh, uh, you know, what's happening like it, with companies 23andMe and they're trying to, you know, uh, really decode the human genome and understand our biology because, you know, we are this unique, you know, uh, how should I say, uh, each person is unique, right? Like, so what's happening with me and my gut is not happening to you and her and whatnot. It, it's all custom, <laughs> customized yeah. to me and my, my DNA and my biology. I, I wish that we soon will have some sort of way to um, help us know what we should do, what kind of medicine we should, we should take uh, without having all the side effects and all the other you know, garbage that we have to deal with while we try and figure things out. I guess I, I haven't... I, I agree. And I'll, I'll throw out a cautionary tale and like COVID has kind of uh, exposed this. Um, people are saying, follow the science. And it's like, okay, what, what is, what does that even mean? And historically doctors have been scientists. Uh, they, they would, okay, well, okay. Your, your head's hurting. Is your blood pressure high? Is it, you know, we'll do an MRI. We start doing this stuff. Um, 
what has happened with this whole notion of follow the science and the science is settled and whatnot, it has become this algorithmized approach to medicine. And this is appropriate to some degree. Like there, there are yeah. some algorithmic things that, you know, if you, if you sort and shuffle things, but what it is, has ultimately turned into is there will be some insurance reimbursable buckets that people fit into. And if you don't fit in that bucket, you don't have a diagnosis and you are out of luck. And we have disempowered the physician from being able to do the next step and the next step and to ask these, these more granular questions. And it's, um, you can't have both socialized medicine and personalized medicine at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Those two things are antithetical to each other. I feel like this is where technology can step in is like do all the work, right? Like, so I've seen a couple of ads lately for apps that if I upload my blood panel, it will translate what that actually means. This is the funny thing to me. I could take my car in for a tune-up uh, and I'll get a full diagnostic and, and they'll be able to tell me, you know, oh, you know, uh, there's a slight pressure leak, you know, in the carburetor or the fluids are low. I get a complete diagnosis for, for my car and yet I can't go to the doctor and, and it, I can't get that diagnosis report. The doctor tells me what, what's wrong, but just very brief and vague, super ambiguous. And then I don't know like what it even means. Like if I have high LDL or uh, low triglycerides, it's like, okay, thanks for telling me, but I have no idea what the, that implication <laughs> means. You right. Know? Uh, right. And the other thing is uh, after, you know, thousands of dollars in medical bills that I, you know, paid, I'm a, you know, I have my own business, so I paid cash and I went to the doctors to get all these things done. At the end of the day, Rob, you know what really solved my issue mainly? Yes, I found the electrolytes. I was deficient. But I also, I just thought, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to get my ass to the gym four or five days a week. I'm going to drop some weight and see what happens. Because I think I, what you're alluding to is that, you know, these doctors are, are treating these acute problems. But, like, these little things, they start to add up. So, like, for me... Um, the stress, the fatigue, the headaches, this was actually disrupting my sleep. And, uh, and as a result, I gained a little bit of weight. I mean, I put on maybe 10, 15 pounds. And, uh, and I wasn't obese by any measure. But the, the 10 to 15 pounds, you know what that did? I started to have apnea, sleep apnea. Yeah. yeah. And th so then I went to see a pul pulmonary doctor. Oh, I have sleep apnea. But I didn't realize that they were related. And it was just sort of compounding. And so... Uh, the pulmonary doctor, what did he do right away? He's like, oh, here's a CPAP machine. So I found myself with a you know, starfish on my face, you know, trying to breathe in. And, and I, I, I tried it for a month, and I was like, fuck this. I'm not, this is not going to be my life until I'm dead. Like, I, I'm not doing this. So I returned it. I got my ass to the gym. I started eating really disciplined. I dropped those 10, 15 pounds. Guess what? The apnea went away. <laughs> and with the electrolytes, the clean eating, and the fitness, the headaches started going away too. too. Yeah. And I was like, too. what just happened here? You know? So it can be frustrating, but uh, sometimes common sense prevails. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, like uh, taking care of your health 
should be this thing that makes a ton of sense, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. Like if you are more that progressive, like socialized medicine thing, then it's like, well, for the party comrade, you need to be in shape and, uh, you know, because you're less of a burden on society. And then for more of the, you know, the conservative side of things, it's like, well, chubby dad, who's a father of three and a husband and all that. If you have a fucking stroke or a heart attack, who's going to take care of your family? And your life insurance is fine, but who's going to take care of your family? Right. Like you need to get your ass in gear and get back in shape so that you can be the leader of your family or, you know, if you're a mom or what, whatever it is, it's like, so the, 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 uh, good health should be this thing that just like cuts through all political boundaries. It's like being yeah. in better shape and healthier is, is a win no matter what. That was my, that was my take too. You're, you're exactly right. That's exactly how I felt is like, I had to take responsibility for my own health because no one else could help me. I, I was dependent on the health, you know, on these professionals. And, and you know, like you, I want to echo, they're amazing, you know. Um, but that said, I think it's the onus is on us. We have to take responsibility for our own health, mainly because no one else knows us as well as we do, you know. Um, that trainer, you know, had good intentions to tell me to drink more water, but bro, that's not getting rid of my headaches because you can't feel the pain. And if you were low sodium and you throw more water in there, yeah. not only was it making it worse, it was increasing the possibility of actually like cerebral embolism or, or a, a brain edema. So right. it was actually going exactly the opposite direction. Yeah. 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 And, and that's a perfect example of great intentions. Um, you know, what do they say? The, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Done good intentions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you know, so I think, you know, if I, if we're going to impart a message here, it seems like we're united on this, that we need to take responsibility for our own health first. Uh, and I would love for healthcare to get solved. I would love for it to be affordable and for me to go in and, and, uh, see the doctor when, you know, uh, my kid breaks his arm or if I have uh, something terrible, but yeah, it, it, I realize that it starts with me, uh, because I, I, you know, intuitively I also know what's kind of going wrong with me. And that's, I was just sort of, you know, um, experimenting with what made me feel, even with eating, it's like I started eliminating things from my diet that I thought might be causing a problem. So I like, as an example, I took out all dairy. I thought mm -hmm. milk is probably making me fat anyway at this stage. And I have a teenager, I'm having him drink as much milk right now as possible, like whole milk, because he is, you know, he's 14, he's in eighth grade, he wants to run track and field, maybe play football. You know, he's... That's uh, the time to do it. Yeah, D dairy is good at taking small mammals and making them large mammals. Yeah, so that's perfect. Yeah. yeah, but so I cut out all dairy, um, and and miraculously, I started feeling better. And I cut out bread. I love bread, but I figured, well, bread's probably making me fat too. Uh, I don't. I haven't historically had a, a gluten issue, but when I eliminated the gluten, I'll tell you what, inflammation decreased. Um, uh, energy increased. I mean, I just started seeing all these benefits. And so anyway, so I, I took back responsibility for myself, started experimenting on myself. Um, and, and it was like so much more effective than going to pay an expensive doctor who's just throwing pills at me. Right. Well, yeah. and what the doctor is ultimately going to be able to do is, is limited anyway, because at the end of the day, it is going to come back to sleep, food, movement, community you know, yeah. and unless you're going to pay the doctor to be like your life coach, 
yeah. and cruise around with you and, and like, you know, ensure that you, you do these things like that, that it, unless you have a legitimate, like deficiency, a hormonal deficiency, or like yeah. you're sick or something, um, you know, generally people don't have a statin deficiency. Like they, they just have some sort of metabolic issue that is causing their cholesterol to rise inappropriately. And, and you're going to fix that with sleep, food, and exercise to the degree you can. There are some genetic outliers that like, they're going to have higher cholesterol levels and we need to figure out how to, how to manage that. But you know, it, it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it's funny. Like our bodies are very good at finding health. If we, if we give it the inputs that it needs, reasonable food, some good sleep community, you know, novel environments and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's your take? Have you heard of these, uh, executive physicals, like these super physicals? Uh, I had Damon John on the show from shark tank and, uh, a friend of Damon suggested he get one of these super physicals, which is like this complete, you know, head to toe diagnostic. I think it costs between five and $10,000. You know, Mayo clinic has it all the best hospitals. And some of them are even like, renting out or borrowing a wing at the Ritz Carlton and the doctor comes and you get these amazing personalized uh, tests and it actually saved Damon's life because they they found a lump in his neck, which ended up being cancerous. Um, It's actually like a, I can't remember if it was a lemon or lime tumor, lemon or lime size uh, tumor in his neck, which he had no idea was there. Anyway, that saved his life. Um, for the rest of us who can't afford a super physical like that, talk to me about blood panel work. How do we how do we sort of get to the how do we get to the issue? How do we figure out what's happening with us? Talk about autoimmune maybe or gut issues. Um, I think you're right. Lots of people suffer with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's funny. I'm a biochemist by training, but I I, I honestly generally opt more on like the experiential side. So do you look, feel and perform better or worse, you know? So we'll, we'll tweak food. We'll encourage people to go to bed earlier. We're some blue blockers in the evening so that the the blue light doesn't keep them awake and all that stuff. I like the experience of people just getting in their body and, and, oh man, I, I do feel better. And I'm a little leaner because I, you know, I'm going to bed earlier and I'm, I'm eating more pro every time I eat, I make sure that I've got a decent chunk of protein and, and then I'm, I'm satisfied and I tend not to overeat with all that stuff. I just love stuff like that. It's super cheap. It's almost universal in application, but I also, there are people that unless they're nearly getting mugged, it's like, oh, I spent $10,000 on this, this thing. And it's really impressive and it's kind of this dick measuring contest. And it's like, then they do the thing, you know, and if it was just like, Hey man, make sure that every meal you have, make sure you've got like a palm and a half size portion of protein there. Like, Oh, that's too easy. That can't work. So we'll do this massive biochemical assessment and we'll have all these people treat you like you're super important and ask you all these questions. And then at the end of the day, here's your meal plan with your palm and a half size piece of protein that you're going to have to eat anyway, you know? And so, um, I have undervalued the importance of some of these screening methodologies just because people are like, Oh, that seems very sciencey. And so now we're going to get some buy-in and there are examples like what you mentioned with, with this guy where it's like, we find something that that we didn't know was going on, but, um, when we look at the main things that kill people, uh, diabetes and cardiovascular disease are, are kind of the biggies. Cancer is kind of right, right behind that. But 
most cancers are metabolically driven, not all of them, but most of like, if you have high blood sugars, you have a higher likelihood of developing this whole host of, of, uh, uh, cancers and whatnot, your likelihood of neurodegenerative disease is higher. So there's an outfit called precision health reports that I, I love what, what they do. I'm on the board of directors of a medical clinic. And we did a, a study with the Reno police and fire department about 10 years ago, where we found the highest risk people in that population. And we got those people on a lower carb paleo type diet, modified their sleep and exercise, got them doing some kind of, you know, uh, scaled appropriate CrossFit. And that pilot study saved the city of Reno, $22 million, uh, an estimated 33 to one return on investment. Like it was amazing. And it yeah. was, it was super inexpensive to do that screening because what we're doing is we're looking at, at, uh, insulin resistance and we're looking at blood sugar and we're looking at inflammatory markers. There's a million things you could look at. Like you could look at hormones, you could look at all, all, all kinds of different things, but I know for a fact that if somebody is metabolically broken, like if their blood sugars run high, if they're insulin resistant, I know they've got problems. This is where like the, the sleep apnea starts coming in and, and, and a host of other things. So that's a great place to start just doing something like this precision health reports screen. It's like 150 bucks. Like yeah. it, it, it's not any more expensive than what you would do with, uh, a standard bit of blood work. The standard bit of blood work, though, we look at total cholesterol, uh, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, blood sugar. Um, there's so many ways that, that that thing really doesn't tell us that much. Like it's hard, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, when people give me those, I'm like, uh, so. So, as an example, the it, within the police, military, and fire group that we worked with, used prior to us working with those folks, they would do the standard blood panel. And they would look at, at, uh, insulin resistance scores, like a triglyceride to HDL ratio gives you some, some insight in that yeah. 60% of the people that we found to be insulin resistant on our advanced testing passed the standard blood panel. Hmm. These are the people that look kind of fit, look kind of healthy, and they end up having a heart attack at age 35 or 40. And, and so, the most risky people, the people that are the, you know, the ones that are going to slide through the usual screening, something like this precision health report stuff really, um, ferrets out what they have going on. And then the, the cool thing about this is the way the report goes out. This is the problem. This is what it means. And here's what we recommend that you do, you know, so like some carbohydrate capping or, you know, improving your sleep or, you know, combinations of that stuff. Um, the other problem with getting standard blood work is like you, and this is, I think you alluded to this, you get this report back and you're like, fuck, there's a bunch of red numbers on here. And your doctor's like, yeah, you're screwed. Let's put you on a statin. Right. And that's it. And, and that that's like the whole, that's the whole conversation. It's like, can I modify diet? Can I do better exercise? What, what about my sleep? And there's nothing else that that's thrown out there with Rob. That's exactly what she said. She goes, we need to put you on a statin right away. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> like let's, what, what other options do I have? And for some people, a statin is totally appropriate, but it, it it's also like, well, is there, can I take some fish oil? Can I do some, can I strength train three days a week and cardio three days a week? And we reassess it, you know, but the, 
most of the reason why the doctor says that is that most people are unwilling to take that next step to do those other things. So they just yeah, and, and that's what the pulmonary doctor said about the CPAP. Uh, I was angry, I, I, legitimately. I was kind of pissed. Like I thought he was very being very lazy, um, but he said to me afterwards when I returned it, sort of in disgust, you know, like how dare you? Uh, he's like, well, you know, most people are just not willing to lose weight. I go. Bro, like I've been an athlete. I mean, I can I can be disciplined. I can I can cut weight if I need to. You know, uh, if it's going to save my life, I can do stuff. Yeah, yeah. I uh, listen. I dropped uh, eating sweets cold turkey five years ago when these headaches started kicking in because I I recognized that sweets were was a trigger, and I was like, I would much rather feel great than have a handful of uh, hot tamales or something. Right. Like, I can give right. this up like that. You tell me, I, that trade-off, feeling great or having a sweet fix, man, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. But, but most people are not that way, unfortunately. And this is kind of the conundrum that we're in, you know, yeah. trying to, to figure that out at, like, a public health level. This is, you know, the, the, the difference between, like, say, like, an entrepreneurial crowd that wants to kind of optimize and then where do we get off that bus and then start talking about like our parents and, and, you know, the, the, the community that we live in and how do we help people with lesser financial means and all this type of stuff, you know, and I, I don't have great answers for all that, but at the end of the day, like some amount of personal responsibility goes a long way in this stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. So as we sort of wrap things up here, um, let's kind of recap and restate some of these things that, maybe simple things that people can do um, to improve their health right away or to feel better right away. What do you say? Sleep is the, the big one. Like even though I'm the food guy, but uh, sleep should be as easy as selling sex. Like it, it really should because everything that you want to have that works well, whether it's your physical performance, whether it's being mentally on, like if you want to be mentally sharp, you don't sleep deprive yourself. If you want to maintain muscle mass, if you want a libido, if you don't want to die early, it, it's sleep. And I know that within this um, kind of entrepreneurial work culture and, and Jocko Wilnick, I, I, I know him and he's amazing, but, it, but even with him, what, what he doesn't articulate that well, he wakes up at 4.30, but he goes to bed at like 8.30 most nights. Yeah, And he probably is one of these people that is, oh, is okay getting a little bit less sleep. Most people are not. Most people need eight and a half, nine hours of sleep. So sleep is just this, um, people, people will do all this weird shit to improve the return on investment of like their financial investments and, and whatnot. And they won't do a goddamn thing to improve the, the ROI of their life. And sleep is like, if you were sleeping poorly and we get you to sleep well, it, it is like a, a 10x ROI on your life because the way that you feel sleep deprived is the way that you will feel when you are old, like all the time. Yeah. And, and the, the, the lack of physical ability, the lack of cognitive uh, acuity and whatnot. So, it, and so, it, you know, I, I would love it if I could run uh, an experiment where there's a parallel universe and I, I exist in a parallel universe and I could run my whole career, not from the food perspective, but from the sleep perspective, because I could back into all this other stuff. It, it, it's like, well, 
your sleep is terrible. Well, why is that? I don't know. Let's do some, some testing. We'll put a, a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor on you. Oh man, your blood sugar goes really high and then it crashes. So we need to get you to eat a lower carb diet. And the person can't bitch about it then because it's like, Hey man, it's your, it's your body and your blood sugar, not me. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. We get them on the lower carb diet. Their sleep improves. They get lean. They, they, they have great, you know, uh, libido, their skin looks better. All these great things happen, but I didn't take something away from them first. We did an assessment first, you know, where it's like a, on these dietary things. Uh, there's so many cool things that improve. Like if we just put th- people through like a cognitive skills test, like a, a drunk driving simulator, um, uh, you know, adding numbers, whatever. And you do that on, uh, uh, three serial days of poor sleep versus three serial days of outstanding sleep. It, you're literally a different person. It, it, do you have a routine or do you, do you have like a special bed? Do you have, um, uh, blackout curtains, you know, sleep with a mask. What do you do? I, I, I use blackout curtains and we're fortunate. We live out in rural Montana. So like on, on, uh, uh, full moon nights, you need the blackout curtains. Other than that, we really don't. Um, I do a little bit of a, a product called a sleep remedy. It's developed by a Navy seal, Dr. Kirk Parsley. And I, I do that before bed in the evenings. I, I, one thing I did is I put probably close to a thousand dollars in dimmer switches through the whole house. Mm. So in the evening, once the sun goes down, I just dim all the lights and I don't make it like, so that you're like bonking your head into things, but it's just not Yankee stadium at night. And what I find is both myself and my kids we just wind down easier. You know, it's like we, we just go through the, the wind down process easier. Um, I have a sleep number bed. And part of that is I had a pretty severe back injury about 15 years ago. And that sleep number is great for my back. Like if it gets cranky, I'm able to dial it up or down. Um, beyond that, I think that folks just need to kind of find a bed that works for them. But I do like the sleep numbers because it can go from pillow soft to as hard as like a plank you know, and, and and it's kind of legit in that regard. What else? I got one of those, um, eight sleep beds that thermoregulates temperature because I run hot, you know, and I can turn it cold. Let me ask you about, so element has got, uh, sodium, potassium and M is for magnesium. Yep. Uh, And magnesium is traditionally good. Well, for lots of things, but also to help you sleep. Yep. Do you recommend, uh, usually when I drink mine, I'll do it pre-workout as sort of like a a pre, it gives me a pump actually, which I was surprised. Uh, but I'm also drinking one before bed. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It is a brilliant thing. And a, a much smarter guy than myself, Dr. Chris Masterjohn, like I, um, I'm the nutrition geek for the masses. Chris is the nutrition geek for me. Like it's hard for me to keep up with Chris. Like he operates at such a high level. He is just a brilliant guy. And he did some digging around. And so this works for men or women, but, but men in particular, like if you have that, like waking up in the middle of the night to pee doing, um, some, some element or, and it can just be salt also, but the element is nice because it does have the magnesium in it and it helps with sleep, but, um, taking a little bit of, you know, like a teaspoon, half a teaspoon of sodium and like two ounces of water, ounce and a half of water, mix it up, shoot it down, what it does is it suppresses cortisol and it suppresses antidiuretic hormone. And both of those things are stimulating and tend to disorder sleep. Uh, I, I don't know if you've 
talked about heart rate variability on the show, but it's a really good indicator of total stress load. Mm. And when our HRV scores increase, it, 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 it means that we're ready to get back in the fight. We're ready to train, we're ready to work or whatever. And if our HRV score is low, usually means we're beat up and, you know, it can help modify training and all that stuff. We've seen people experience dramatically improved, consistently improved heart rate variability scores just by doing salt before bed, because their sleep is much more consistent. And it's like, how fucking cheap is that? It's like a teaspoon of salt, water, mix it, go. Like if you want to do element, great. If you don't half a teaspoon, do a teaspoon of water, you know, of salt, put it in some water, swizzle it up, shoot it down. Let's get specific with the salt. Is this like the, you know, Morton salt? Are we talking about Himalayan salt or? I don't care. I don't, I, I I just find no. Yeah. Any, any salt. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's some kind of hokum around like all the, the minerals and salt. If you like it, great. But I, I, I don't get wrapped around yet. Who knows where it really comes from, right? I mean, I mean <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there's a story behind it, but who knows if it's really true. true. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm all in on the sleep too. Um, well, and and I, just one, one thing to put a bow on that. The sleep will give you, uh, this was my point about doing an alternate career. If your blood sugar is too high or too low, or you're eating too many carbs or not enough protein, it will reflect in your sleep. If you don't go outside and get light on your skin to entrain your circadian biology, it will affect your sleep. If you don't move enough throughout the day, it will affect your sleep. If you are unhappy and don't have good social connectivity, it will affect your sleep. So it's a, it, it's a really interesting hub that we can use to orient all the rest of our life. And it, and it happens in a way that I, I think is very um, positive because if we sleep better, our life is better. Like we feel better. We're happier people, all, all that type of stuff. Whereas when we enter into things, it's like, I'm the nutritionist. Then people are immediately like, shit, he's going to take away all my stuff. <laughs> and it's like, we, we may in fact end up taking away some stuff, but it's because it's damaging your sleep. Not because we're tackling this as specifically a, a food intervention. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That when when I went from bad to worse, it was all because of my sleep, and and it just it made everything like 10x more painful. I woke up feeling like I got hit by a truck, you know, the sleep apnea, I just all of it, and and I was in this infinite loop with the headaches, and it, yep. and I couldn't tell if it was at that point. Uh, from fatigue, which probably it was, you know, sleep fatigue and, you know, having too much cortisol or lack of electrolytes or all of the above. But you're right. I think um, that's a good place to to wrap it up is on sleep. Yeah. Well, I hope this is like part one of several that we do, Rob. I'm fascinated. I could talk to you for another six hours. Um, I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, it's it helped me tremendously personally, and I know I've been sharing it on the show and, and hopefully getting the, the good word out. But uh, thanks so much for spending some time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Huge honor. Thank you. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that, <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. 
a dangling carrot and hang from the rear view. Uh-huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders, too biased, they all liars. I should get an A for effort, I'm too tired. But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kinda in mind. Role model, like it or not, I gotta play it. Sugarcoat the rhyme sometimes, but still say.